Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is a roundtable discussion on U.S. financial reform, moderated by Ernesto Zedillo, the Frederick Eisman 74 Director, Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. Discussants include Robert Schiller, Arthur M. Oaken, Professor of Economics at Yale University, Stephen Roach, Senior Research Fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and Thomas Cooley, Stern School of Business at NYU. The roundtable discussion took place at Yale University on September 15, 2010. Good afternoon. I am uh, Ernesto Cedillo of the Center for the Study of uh, Globalization. Thanks uh, for being here. Well, uh, exactly two years ago, at, uh, on September 15, 2008, at 1.30 in the morning, it was announced that uh, Lehman Brothers was going out of business. And uh, that was uh, the beginning of a very special period, an episode, because we started, I would say you can mark with that date, what is now called uh, the first uh, grand crisis of the 21st century. I don't think I need to make a recollection of the events uh, that follow the fall of uh, Lehman Brothers, but it's interesting to remember that only two days after that, uh, AIG went uh, under the water uh, a money market fund uh, went uh, also under the water. And by Thursday and Friday of that week, there was literally widespread panic in not only financial markets in the US, but practically all over the world. So much that uh, on Friday of that week, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury uh, of the United States and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, of the Board of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, uh, went to the White House and got authorization from the President of the United States uh, to undertake unprecedented uh, efforts to avoid the collapse of the, of the financial sector. It is still took uh, a few weeks before they got their way with the U.S. Congress. And during those uh, hectic days, I think it is not an exaggeration to say that we were on the eve of seeing uh, a total collapse, not only of the financial system, but perhaps of the real economy, of the major economies, of the world. It took a few weeks before we could see some uh, coherent and uh, coordinated action to uh, stop or to mitigate that uh, huge uh, risk of collapse. But by then, I think uh, the damage uh, was done to a significant extent. 
the global economy had its worst uh, year in terms of uh, GDP growth uh, in many decades, in 60 years. There was a lot of variance, but practically every major economy suffered a lot. And, and also a number of emerging economies uh, had to take uh, substantial pain. Right from the beginning, needless to say, the occurrence of this uh, crisis uh, was uh, identified with uh, failures in the financial system. Uh, it was particularly revealing that uh, right from the first meeting of the G20 at the leaders level in November of 2008, uh, those leaders uh, committed strongly to undertake coordinated action in order to provide the world with a new financial architecture and uh, new financial rules that will make the system less vulnerable to the kind of uh, events that we were going through uh, those uh, days. They reiterated that commitment at the London meeting of April of nine, and certainly in September of 09 at their summit in Pittsburgh. And meanwhile, on the national tracks, uh, various efforts of reform were uh, started. Uh, at some points, uh, these uh, efforts have not been necessarily consistent among themselves despite uh, the commitment taken by the G20, but in any case, it has been happening. Needless to say, the most significant of these undertakings, given the relative importance of the US financial system, is precisely the reform that was uh, signed into bill only last uh, July, after a long, tortuous, complex process uh, of negotiation in the US Congress. For some people, well, this is the reform that not only will set a standard for other parts of the world, but uh, that perhaps also will prevent the occurrence of another crisis like the one we had in 08 and that to some extent we are still uh, suffering. Uh, today. But for others, uh, there may be questions about the, the usefulness, the consistency, the substance of that reform. Some people may even question whether uh, it was uh, of the highest priority to have a financial reform like the one that has been posed, considering that perhaps it was not so much a problem in the financial sector as a problem in the management of what we economists uh, like to call the global macroeconomic imbalances. Believing that without those global macroeconomic imbalances, perhaps we wouldn't have seen those problems in the financial sector to begin with. But this is just to say that the subject continues to be highly controversial, 
it will continue to be debated, but for the time being, I think it is important to pay attention <coughs> to what policymakers are deciding nowadays. And for that reason, today we have uh, put together what I dare to call a fantastic panel of experts to discuss uh, the financial reform in the United States. I can hardly think of a better group to um, undertake uh, this endeavor because uh, we have with us, of course, our very own Professor Bob Schiller. And when people speak about uh, this crisis, uh, I think uh, there are less than three uh, experts that can be pointed out as persons that uh, saw it coming somehow. And, uh, and one of them, of course, was uh, Professor Bob Schiller, and I don't need to go through his very long biography because all of us know about his very important work. Uh, we also have with us, and I thank uh, him a lot for making the journey, the long journey from New York City, uh, Professor uh, Tom Cooley, who until recently was Dean of the Stern of School, School of Business at NYU, but more importantly for our purposes, he has been uh, an intellectual leader uh, at the Stern School uh, of a group that in a very lucid and timely fashion has been following events uh, of course, before the crisis, but particularly relevant during the crisis uh, and after the crisis. This group uh, at NYU, uh, with an incredibly opportunity, produced uh, a major work which is titled Restoring Financial Stability, How to Repair a Failed System. I think they got together in the fall of 08 and already early in 09, they had produced this incredible volume. And even more surprising is that a few weeks after the signing of the bill, the financial reform bill, they had produced another book, which uh, is already available somehow, but it will be published in print within a few days, which is called Regulating Wall Street, the New Architecture of Global uh, finance, which also has a fantastic collection of papers. So Tom Cooley is uh, with us uh, today. And then with us, we have one of our newest acquisitions. We have uh, Steve Roach, uh, who hardly needs any introduction because he has been a very visible economic uh, uh, influential analyst uh, for a long time. He used to be uh, the chairman of uh, Morgan Stanley Asia. He just retired and with very good judgment, he decided to accept uh, appointments both at the School of Management here and also at the soon to be presented uh, Jackson Institute. And the reason why I thought it was great to have Steve here is because he was also among the very few who saw it coming. I remember to have been with Steve 
in places, strange places like Moscow, Beijing, Barcelona, uh, before the crisis, many places. And uh, Steve was always speaking about the crisis to come, you know. And uh, I remember that people sometimes say, what is this guy talking about? What crisis he's talking about? Well, unfortunately, Steve was right. Uh, so I think it's very fortunate that now he is uh, part of our community and probably this is one of the first uh, public uh, appearances that uh, Steve does at our university. So having said that, uh, let's go to the, real, to the real work and I will ask uh, Bob Schiller to open our session. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you, Ernesto. Uh, so we're talking about the new Dodd-Frank bill. Uh, I also want to add the new Basel III agreement that uh, just came out. There's a lot of information. Uh, this is a major turning point in our financial system. Let me first say that uh, I'm much more warm and positive to Dodd and Frank than most of my economist colleagues. I think it's amazing what they did, given what their background <laughs> was. They're not uh, PhD economists. I think we would have had a better bill if we put John Janakopoulos, Gary Gorton, and uh, members of this panel on uh, writing the bill. Uh, Barney Frank was a um, dropout from a poli-sci PhD program. Uh, he's pretty smart, though. If you look at the bills, they take account of the problems, uh, the bill, uh, take account of the issues. It seems like they've listened to a lot of people. And, uh, but I don't think that Congress can resolve the difficult questions. So unfortunately, the Dodd-Frank bill seems to be very strong on setting up new agencies and ordering the agencies to study something uh, and then decide. And it seems to me that the outcome of this uh, will, will be, uh, depends on what those people do. Uh, and we don't know yet. I think that it's all, most of it is to come. But I do want to congratulate uh, Dodd and Frank. I think they did. Well, we, we don't have a dysfunctional Congress, at least uh, in terms of this bill. So, uh, so Ernesto points out today is the second anniversary of the Lehman Brothers uh, uh, bankruptcy. Uh, I wanted to do a, a thought experiment and ask what would have happened uh, uh, regarding this bankruptcy if Dodd-Frank had been put in place, and let's say a full 10 years ago, so it could have all worked out. Now, I, I have to say, I don't know what exactly would have happened because Dodd-Frank, as I said, is a plan for, for fu future studies and the like, but I'm going to try to imagine. Uh, so the, the Dodd-Frank bill creates something called the Financial Services Oversight Council, which is supposed to be preventing systemic failures, making recommendations to government regulators uh, to prevent uh, uh, crises, and it's going to be headed by the Treasury Secretary. Now this sounds like a big, it is potentially a big and important change, but I do have some little questions about it. I kind of remember back in 1987, President Reagan set up something called the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, and it became nicknamed the Plunge Team, and they were supposed to prevent systemic crises, and it had the Treasury Secretary, I forget who else. It's kind of a similar event. They didn't do much, I guess, and they didn't prevent this crisis. Uh, so let's go back to 2000. Uh, the uh, Treasury Secretary was Larry Summers. Okay, 
Uh, he is famous for, at a Jackson Hole conference, uh, uh, chastising Raghu Rajan for claiming that there's an in, uh, instability <laughs> in the economy. And so uh, I kind of doubt that Larry Summers was in the mood to um, do the kinds of things that uh, FSOC is supposed to do. But I wanted to go on with other Treasury Secretaries. And uh, who is the next Treasury Secretary? Do you remember? Paul O'Neill, who was uh, uh, former CEO of Alcoa, the aluminum producing company. By the way, not, as far as I know, an econ PhD. And he was replaced uh, under Bush by John Snow, who was the uh, uh, CEO of CSX, a railroad. Okay. These are the guys who are supposed to be doing these steps uh, to prevent this crisis. Uh, it's gonna, and then we got Henry Paulson, uh, who knew a little, little bit more about finance, apparently. But this is what is supposed to uh, happen. The FSOC is supposed to, remember that the Lehman Brothers is not a bank. It owned a bank called Lehman Brothers Bank, but it was tiny, it was only $5 billion. That bank, by the way, still survives uh, they got spun off from the, dis the owner that died, and the bank, uh, guess what they did? The first thing they did is to change their name. <laughs> they're, no, they're called the Aurora Bank now, uh, but they're okay. But Lehman Brothers was not a bank, so it didn't have bank regulation, and it didn't have the Fed regulating it. Now, this is the critical thing in Dodd-Frank. Lehman Brothers was an investment bank, which is not a commercial bank. So uh, Dodd-Frank says that the FOC, FSOC can, on a two-thirds vote, designate it as a, as a, to be uh, regulated by the Fed, <coughs> but only if, they, if the council determines, and I'm <coughs> reading from the bill, from the act, if the council determines that material financial distress at, uh, uh, of the U.S. non-bank financial company could pose a threat to the financial stability of the United States. Okay, so 10 years ago, <coughs> would this have happened, or any time in the last decade, would the Treasury Secretary have announced that Lehman Brothers poses a threat to the financial stability of the United States and so should be regulated by the Federal Reserve? I want to point out that Lehman's debt was rated A-plus by Standard & Poor's until June of 2008, which was like a few months before their bankruptcy. Now, so what will happen? Will the FSOC put, it, in order to make this work, they've got to put a lot of companies like Lehman Brothers that look perfectly sound uh, under, the, under the direction of the FSOC. I could go on and on. I'm running. <laughs> we're, I'll let you, we're talking about a thousand-page bill, and there's so much going on that I can't. Uh, but um, I, don't th I think that it all depends on what the, who we put in charge of the FSOC and how aggressive they are and how much they understand what's going on. Uh, now. Um, John Janakopoulos, who's sitting right in front of me, has made a very convincing case that there is a sort of leverage cycle that drives economies. So uh, we get, and, and this has been backed up by other, so for example, Reinhardt and Rogoff have shown that leverage builds up and booms and then it over, and then it tends to collapse and it produces bad periods that go up for a long time. So what's in the bill regarding this? Well, I see in the, in the act, it's now an act, it says, uh, I have it here somewhere, but I'm, I'm, I'm taking too much time to <laughs> find it, that the, uh, it, it essentially the language is something like if the um, Fed, now regulating Lehman Brothers or someone like that, 
determines that the company is a grave threat to the U.S. economy, it can impose a 15 to 1 leverage ratio, something like that. I, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, and d will they do that? Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, that, that's, that's the question. Uh, Basel III is in interposing as well. That's an international agreement. Uh, that also talks a lot about leverage, and there's, there's so many ideas here. I don't know where to let, let me just jump ahead because I don't want to monopolize this whole thing. Uh, just concluding from what I've said, that I give credit to Dodd and Frank and all the other people for taking note of, I think they've listened to you, John, and they've listened to Gary Gorton, and they don't know what to make of it. So they said, uh, these people are smart, and they might be right, so let's commission a study. Let's create, they created the Office of Financial Research. Now I was wondering, that's under the FSOC. That could be a big thing. If they fund it at a high enough level, you know, we could have 10,000 economists there researching financial stability. So I looked at it, does it say how big it will be? And maybe I missed something, but it says something like the Treasury Secretary shall confer with someone and they'll decide on a budget. So we don't know. The, FS, the Office of Financial Research could turn out to be John, John Akopoulos, and a thousand G, uh, MBAs working under him, or it could be me and two MBAs, or who knows what. We just don't know. And, uh, but it's a, the bill is Do a. Do you want the job? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would, uh, that would be an important job. Uh, but anyway, let me other say. The, <laughs> It would, be, it would be hard to turn that down, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, the, uh, I mentioned that the uh, um, credit rating given to uh, Lehman Brothers was A+. Plus. Something was wrong there, okay? Well, the bill has a whole section on credit rating agencies, and it, does all, it has all kinds of ideas how to prevent this from making, uh, making headway. But I read the whole thing, and I, I haven't read it. Uh, maybe as uh, sympathetically as I could, but it has things in it like uh, uh, the, uh, there's a title saying information from sources other than the issuer. Basically, the credit rating agency is required by law now not to rely entirely on the issuer. There's a lot of little things like that that uh, are in the bills that, uh, that might. Uh, I, I was just going to mention a few because I think I'm out of time here, but uh, just a couple other things. Uh, executive compensation. This is a political hot potato, uh, and uh, part of the problem is that our system of executive compensation may reward inappropriate risk-taking. So you think you're, now let's say I'm CEO of Lehman or some company like that. Everybody knows the government's going to bail me out, so hey, I'm a riskless, I can borrow at the riskless rate. So why don't I borrow at the riskless rate and leverage myself up in risky assets, and a 50-50 chance of I'll make it and I'll be rich, or I go bankrupt and then, you know, nothing happens to me. Uh, so uh, we want to sort of consider some kind of change in compensation structure that might change their incentive to take these risks. And there is a, there's a whole bunch of things in this bill. There is something about preventing <laughs> incentive-based payment arrangements uh, that uh, 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 it doesn't say just for the Fed. It says that federal, appropriate federal regulators can prohibit uh, pay arrangements that create the wrong incentive. Uh, so actually, uh, I wrote a New York Times column advocating something that I belong to a group called the Squam Lake Group, and we had many recommendations, but one of our recommendations, and I know Tom Cooley has recommendations on executive compensation. They're kind of similar in a way, but our recommendation is that executives 
at systemically important firms should have part of their salary held back. This should be a law. You, you can't take all your salary up front. And you'll only get it like five years later, and you won't get it if the government bailed you out. So it creates a penalty for being bailed out. So I wrote a New York Times column about that, and then to my amazement, Barney Frank called me two days later. He's just on the phone. He just calls me up. You know, no, he's not very ceremonious. There's no <laughs> secretary. He just calls me up, and he said, I liked your column, and he said, uh, I think uh, it's in our bill already. Uh, uh, and he said, well, I think it's there, but I don't want to change the wording now because it's too late. But I, I found the passage that he was referring to, uh, and it just says that, th that uh, regulators can prohibit, uh, prohibit incentive-based payments. And now uh, Barney has invited someone from our group uh, to a uh, hearing on this. So it seems like we do have a functional Congress. They have ideas. They're listening to academics, uh, but they're still groping. And Maybe uh, the other thing is a huge section in the bill about mortgage reform, uh, and uh, there's also a consumer fin uh, financial product safety commission. And, uh, I think it's a good bill, but I think uh, I'll stop with this and I'll say that uh, it's only good to the extent that we make it good. And it seems to me that it has enough in it that if we get the right people and we and, and we. Uh, respect people who've studied and thought about these things, they can transform the Dodd-Frank bill into something that really does help prevent this kind of crisis. Thank you both. <laughs> Professor Cooley. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, I want to second one of Bob's recommendations that write to your congressman and nominate John Genicopoulos to be mm -hmm. the head of the Office of Financial Research and the, the uh, end result of the, this bill will be uh, a lot better than you might now expect. Um, there, I want to also start with a little shameless advertising. There's a book, forthcoming book called Regulating Wall Street by myself and 40 of my closest friends. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, in stores soon uh, by, I think, October 12th, something like that. You can order it now on Amazon, and it explains all 2,300-plus pages of the Dodd-Frank Act in simple, easy-to-understand terms. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've read all 2,300 pages of the act, and uh, I understand quite a few of them. So, uh, But as Bob said, there's a lot still to be determined uh, in the way the act is implemented. So there's an enormous amount of rulemaking yet to be done. There, I believe, something like 112 rules that are yet to be written. There are 60 studies that have to be completed uh, before we know how exactly this is going to change the landscape of regulation. Now, the Dodd-Frank Act is widely described as the most ambitious attempt to, <coughs> uh, to change financial regulation, regulation of the financial system, since the 1930s. And uh, I, I, I agree with that assessment. It's the most ambitious. The question is, 
does it have a chance at being as successful as reforms that were put in place in the 1930s? Um, the 1930s uh, <clears throat> was sort of a watershed in U.S. economic history and a watershed in regulatory history. And for whatever reason, by accident, by design, by just good luck, the reforms that were put in place in the 1930s gave us, one, one could easily argue, uh, you know, seven decades of uh, relatively good financial performance. Our economy, our financial system was the envy of the world. And so did that happen because these were well-designed regulations or did it happen simply because we were in the sweet spot in terms of economic growth following World War II. There are a lot of, lot of uh, possible explanations for that. Um, and so one thing you can do is you can ask uh, the question, what made those reforms successful? And you can go back to the simple economic theory of regulation and ask, um, <clears throat> You know, why, why did these things succeed? They succeeded because they identified externalities in the financial system, asymmetric information problems, uh, moral hazard problems, and they addressed them with regulations that specifically targeted those failures of, of the financial system. So the, the famous Glass-Steagall Act was one such thing, the creation of the FDIC, the creation of the SEC. All of these targeted specific market failures in the financial system. And as a result, and, and then they addressed the likely feedback of the regulations on things like moral hazard and so on by putting in place further constraints on financial activities. So the question is, over time, what happened? Well, over time, what happened is that the world evolved, financial markets evolved, uh, banks began to eat away at the edges of these regulation. Uh, the process of regulatory arbitrage uh, began to render the regulations uh, ineffective and uh, attempts to patch up the system by say the Basel I and Basel II capital accords were disaster because the banks very quickly used those, um, those rules as opportunities for regulatory arbitrage. And what happened is what grew out of that is a parallel financial intermediation system, the shadow banking system. And the shadow banking system was not subject to the rules of the game in the same way that deposit-based banking systems had been. And without taking you through the whole litany of the financial crisis and, and the, the stories that led up to uh, September 15th, 2008, um, you can easily recall what it was that happened and why things got out of control. So with that as a preamble, what do I think of the Dodd-Frank Act? Well, the real story, to, 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 to answer that question, 
you have to begin with an analysis of what caused the failure, what caused the collapse. And there were, in my view, and according to me uh, and uh, my co-authors, um, it was a, a result of the buildup of systemic risk in the financial system. That is, risk that in which individual firms' actions had consequences for the whole financial commons. And there was also um, kind of an undermining of the regulatory system that had, that had been put in place to, to deal with that. And there was a growth of this parallel banking system. Um, so I, I don't want to take up too much time. I'll be relatively brief. But what, what do I think of the Dodd-Frank Act? Well, I think I, I agree with Bob. I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing that this complicated act got through the enormously difficult political process. Um, and uh, that, uh, and that you know, Barney Frank and Christopher Dodd managed to keep their ducks in a row uh, and muster sufficient support to get this thing passed. There's a lot to be still determined. What I will say about it is that, in some sense, its heart is in the right place. That is, it recognizes the central importance of systemic risk of systemic risk to the financial system. And it tries to it tries to address that by the aforementioned Systemic Risk Council that's going to deal with systemically <laughs> important institutions uh, by giving the Federal Reserve new powers to address systemically risky institutions and to regulate them and by providing for things like orderly liquidation of systemically important institutions, um, by providing, by requiring them to prepare funeral plans uh, so that they can uh, un engage in an orderly demise, if you like. Um, and so it tries to put in place a lot of put back in place a lot of things that were, were effective in the 1930s at containing this, uh, these kinds of risks. Um, it has a lot of pieces to it that are essentially irrelevant to the, the smooth functioning of the financial system. I would argue that the things uh, we, we can get into the details of why I think this, but uh, issues of executive compensation and consumer protection, a lot of that stuff has not, is not really central uh, to the stability of the financial system. So it, it, it goes a long way towards making the system safer. Um, it has sections on capital requirements, which say that whatever comes out of the Basel process, the U.S. is going to stick to strict capital and liquidity uh, requirements. It has a very good uh, section on regulating derivatives contracts, which ensures a greater deal of transparency and more easily uh, 
more easy resolution of derivative positions in the event of financial collapse and so on. So, so what don't I like about it, if its heart is in the right place? Well, <laughs> one is that it basically fails to ask the question that you should ask at the beginning, which is, what is banking and what is a bank? It's designed to regulate by form rather than function. So there's far too much of an emphasis on deposit-based banking institutions without a recognition, without enough of a recognition. There's some recognition that a lot of the problems that uh, caused this financial crisis came from the fact that the shadow banking system evolved in, in parallel uh, <laughs> to the deposit-based banking system. And a lot of the instability and a lot of the problems arose there. There are problems in the repo markets, um, <laughs> and um, there are many issues that are just simply not addressed. Now, it does say that the Fed has the ability to designate systemically risky institutions that are not banks, that are not deposit-based banks. But at the same time, it severely limits what is called the Fed's 13-3 lending authority, which is what it appealed to when it bailed out Bear Stearns would have had to appeal to had it bailed out Lehman Brothers. Um, so what it says is, is that the Fed can designate systemically risky uh, non-bank firms. It can appeal to the Systemic Risk Council, and uh, I was sobered by uh, Bob's account of some of our recent Treasury secretaries thinking about them dealing with it. Um, uh, evidently, Paul O'Neill was most concerned at the Treasury uh, with the boxes that were piled in the hallway because he was a big worker safety uh, nut. Uh, um, and I remember actually him saying to me at some point, why does it take us so damn long to close the books? At Alcoa, we used to close the books within, yeah. Uh, the first anyway. company that reports in the quarter. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that, that's a sobering prospect, right? Um, you, you don't want to be waiting for, uh, <laughs> for something like that, for him to conduct a worker safety inspection while uh, Bear Stearns is melting down. Um, so so it, it's, it, it's excessively focused on institutions and not the financial commons. It still, it talks about systemic risk, it talks about orderly liquidation plans and so on, but it's firm by firm, bank by bank, no recognition of the systemic, there is a recognition of systemic risk, but there's nothing in the bill that would discourage firms from creating this kind of risk. So if you're an economist, immediately when you think of an externality that firms like that are creating by their actions, the immediate tool for resolving that that comes to mind are what we call Paguvian taxes. That is, tax them for engaging in this activity that's creating risks or imposing costs on 
people who are firms that are not parties to their transactions um, and thereby discourage those kinds of activities. Um, the other, and that's just completely missing. Um, the great, the end result of the great debate about what was called the bank tax <laughs> was that the cost to society of resolving a systemically important firm that goes bust are to be borne by the surviving firms rather than born ex ante by all the firms. Now that's like, you know, charging the neighbors for the fire department and the cost of fighting the fire in your house, you know, when you're barbecuing in the living room. Um, <coughs> you know, this makes no sense. And it imposes costs on surviving institutions at exactly the time that they're likely to be weakest and most vulnerable. So these are, are some of the serious defects of, of the act. I mean, I think it has the, uh, the possibility to make the world uh, a little bit safer, but it has some serious, serious flaws in its thinking about these important issues. And now the important uh, exercise is, I think, the one that, that Bob was talking about, that is, you think about if this act had been in place in 2000 or 2003, what would have happened as the financial crisis began to unfold? Would it have stopped or mitigated the crisis? The answer is, by and large, I think no. Uh, might have mitigated a bit. Bear Stearns would not have been eligible for uh, lending uh, by the Fed because Bear Stearns was not a bank. <coughs> Once again, it's regulation by form rather than function. Uh, Lehman Brothers would not have been eligible. Now, what the new act does say is that <laughs> they could appeal to Treasury Secretary, think Paul O'Neill. Uh, they could... Um, uh, they could designate an entire industry at risk and provide lending facilities that apply to the whole industry. So uh, things that they did to rescue money market funds uh, would, be, would be perfectly uh, valid under the, the Dodd-Frank Act. And so there is a mechanism in place that would have stopped uh, stop runs on some, some money market funds, I think. Um, but it would not have stopped the run on Bear Stearns. It would not have stopped the run on Lehman Brothers. And, um, you know, the, the, the outcome eventually would have been, if probably, if, if this act had been in place, uh, the financial crisis would have gotten more severe earlier <laughs> than waiting for the Lehman collapse. It would have, it would have started with Bear Stearns. Uh, that's my take. And then a final criticism, a final thing to at least think about uh, the act is, is this. One of the most important, two, two of the most important institutions in the shadow banking system, the most systemically important institutions, one of the generators of 
huge risk in the economy that are still costing us money to bail them out were Fannie and Freddie. And the act says absolutely nothing about them. It has nothing, uh, <coughs> nothing to say about what to do about housing. Now, we've been promised an answer about what we're going to do about those soon, but it remains to be seen. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Turn, Steve. Ernesto, before I um, offer my brief remarks, in, in the um, interest of, of full disclosure, um, contrary to rumors, I have not retired from Morgan Stanley. Um, I'm still working at Morgan Stanley. I'm there um, a couple days a week, three days a week at Yale. Uh, maybe one day I'll retire from Morgan Stanley. But so, they pay you less now. We'll find that out shortly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, as I, it, it's important for me to tell you that because, you know, you, you can, you can evaluate my, um, my perspective on the basis of, uh, of, of the, of the seat or the seats, uh, that I inhabit as well. Although, as Ernesto did say, I've not been bashful about, uh, offering some critical remarks of, uh, markets and, uh, market participants, uh, in, um, my, my long uh, career. I, I do remember uh, this date uh, two years ago. Um, uh, actually, if I, I go back to a couple of days before that, on Friday, I think September the 12th, uh, our stock uh, at Morgan Stanley closed at uh, $45 a share. Uh, and it, it was down a lot from um, the highs in the in the low 70s earlier that summer, and we were feeling pretty depressed. Uh, and then uh, 48 uh, hours later, uh, it hit an intraday low of six, uh, and um, it's now bounced all the way back to uh, 27. So uh, you know, uh, two years later, I don't think um, uh, shareholders of financial services firms. Uh, are uh, feeling particularly uh, warm and fuzzy about uh, the post-crisis uh, climate. I, I like the, uh, the exercise that Bob uh, took us through. I think it, it's very helpful. Uh, I think uh, the, um, uh, the real question, I, I would put it somewhat differently though, and that is, um, will this type of um, legislation uh, prevent the next crisis. Uh, that, that's what it's supposedly all about. I think it's important to go back and do the experiment to see how it would have done uh, uh, this time. Uh, and, um, but I think what we're really after is, is getting a, um, uh, a mechanism in place that would, would never, uh, would certainly not allow something like this to happen again in the future. And, as somebody who's lived through a lot of financial crises uh, as a uh, uh, Wall Street uh, participant in, in my 30 plus years um, uh, in the business and having participated in a number of 
post-crisis, uh, uh, post-mortem rule writing exercises, uh, the one thing that I always draw from these exercises, and, and Dodd-Frank uh, is a case in point, is that we always come up with rules and regulations that are highly conditioned by uh, the crisis we've just gone through, and yet um, it's, it's human nature, and, and, and Bob and his great work on uh, behavioral finance and animal spirits can tell you better than anyone that, that um, the next crisis is never like the last one. Uh, and so, you know, we, we may have done a terrific job, um, and, and it's not clear to me we have, but just, just grant the possibility that we did a terrific job in preventing the next subprime crisis. Uh, <laughs> The odds of having another subprime crisis are probably not very high at this point uh, in time. Uh, I also find it interesting that uh, the same Congress that um, uh, was able to um, uh, get this agreement um, uh, signed into law with, under enormous pressure from the White House is also the same Congress that empo empowered um, something called the um, FCIC, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, that is due to report, I believe, um, in December of this year on what actually caused the crisis. Uh, so it, it, maybe it's ironic or perhaps foolish uh, for the same legislative authority to have um, offered up a bill that's designed to fix the crisis that they don't know what caused it. Um, it's, uh, to me, uh, you know, I, I agree with, with, with Bob. It, it was an amazing uh, political uh, undertaking, but it smacks um, a, an awful lot of, uh, uh, of, of high-powered high uh, political uh, theater in uh, an important uh, election year. And again, just to echo the, the point that that Bob and, and, and Tom have both made, and that is, this is, it, it's premature to judge uh, uh, whether or not this bill is, is, is going to uh, work effectively since so much of it is yet to be determined. Uh, it's a framework, and uh, far be it for me to prejudge the, uh, the, the ultimate framework. What I would like to, to just offer in my um, uh, one uh, a comment that I would like to leave you with uh, this afternoon, and that is, uh, even if this were the perfect mousetrap, uh, I would argue that uh, regulatory reform uh, is a necessary but not sufficient condition to prevent uh, the next crisis uh, from uh, occurring. Uh, the missing leg to the stool, in, in my opinion, uh, is the, the failure of our legislative authorities to uh, address the horrific flaws in the conduct of monetary policy uh, in the United States. We have had um, a bubble-prone central bank in the United States uh, really since the um, uh, mid to late 1990s, and it's, I can assure you it's not uh, getting any better uh, today. Uh, we have a central uh, bank uh, chairman, uh, and I don't mean to make this personal, but you have to 
sort of you know, talk about you know, the man, his body of research, uh, and um, the papers that he's presented uh, in Ben Bernanke, who simply does not believe that monetary policy should be used in any way whatsoever to address asset bubbles and the way in which they distort and ultimately can uh, infect the real side of the U.S. economy. He did research on this prior to coming into the Fed. He's written papers on it, speeches on it, uh, and he had a, a major influence uh, on his um, uh, predecessor, uh, who uh, certainly believed very much uh, in, in, the, in the, the same uh, thing. Uh, my, my view, and, and I, I, for those of you who've read some of the, um, the things that I've written over the years, I, I sound like a broken record, but I'll, I'll just run the risk of breaking the record one more time. Uh, I think monetary policy in the U.S. has been uh, far too accommodative uh, for far too long. The real federal funds rate, uh, you know, the nominal funds rate adjusted for inflation uh, has been um, uh, uh, below its long-term average, I think, for about nine of the past ten years. It's been negative or below zero, where it is right now, for more than half that time. This is the most accommodative monetary policy that the U.S. Federal Reserve has run since the mid-1970s. And if those, for those of you who remember the 70s, that was not a particularly uh, a good period of time. The, um, uh, the U.S. Um, Central Bank has had a view for a long time that monetary policy is a blunt instrument, uh, should not uh, be used to uh, lean against uh, asset bubbles, uh, because after all, uh, no one ever really knows uh, if there's an asset bubble. Uh, and it, it, it takes too big a toll on the broad economy to use a blunt instrument, even if you did know what an asset bubble is. I, I honestly think that's self-serving gobbledygook. Um, the idea that we didn't know that there was uh, a bubble uh, in equities or property or credit. I mean, I realize there were probably a few people in America who didn't read one of your books, Bob. But it was, it was pretty widely distributed, and, and, and you were very prominent uh, in warning of these uh, series of bubbles well ahead of time, but you were not alone. There were others, and there was a debate on this, but it was pretty clear at the end of um, the 1990s, as well as the end of the property bubble, or if you're looking at credit spreads, that something was seriously awry uh, in the, the conduct of monetary policy that was providing the type of liquidity that was fueling these bubbles. The Fed says in response, well, if we had leaned against these bubbles, we would have um, uh, taken uh, a toll on a larger portion of the economy than we would have liked. Uh, what is, I think, particularly striking was at their peaks uh, uh, in sort of the 2006 to 2007 period, the two bubble-affected sectors of the United States economy, home building activity and bubble-distorted personal consumption activity, collectively added up to 77% of the U.S. GDP. I mean, this is what you have a blunt instrument uh, to address. You had uh, nearly 80% of the economy distorted by bubbles uh, that were fueled uh, by um, uh, irresponsibly accommodative monetary policy. So I think we need to fix that. 
and I think we need to add financial stability to uh, as a, um, uh, uh, another dimension of the Fed's policy mandate. Uh, and I think the Fed should be held explicitly accountable towards setting monetary policy, not just with respect to uh, full employment, as it was empowered to do in uh, the, the Employment Act of 1946, not as it was then uh, amended to um, uh, aim for price stability, as it was required to do uh, in the Humphrey Hawkins uh, Act of uh, 1978 after the Great Inflation. But now, in the aftermath of uh, the Great Crisis and Recession, I think it's equally important to add financial stability uh, to the Fed's policy uh, mandate. The Fed says, oh, don't worry, we've learned the lesson, uh, trust us. Uh, we would never do this again. With all due respect, and as somebody who has great uh, personal fondness for an institution that gave me my first job at a grad school, uh, I don't trust the Fed in, in this regard. I think they, they, they need to be held explicitly accountable for financial stability as well. Uh, and, um, um, and I think as part of that, they need, like other central banks, they don't like doing this. This is a tough thing for the staff to do. They need to, to um, as part of their accountability and financial stability, produce their own financial stability report uh, on a regular basis. So that, uh, they're very transparent in the way they understand the linkage between monetary policy and uh, financial stability. We need to hardwire this requirement uh, into the system. I think um, uh, that's the main point that I wanted to make, Ernesto. I just would, would finish with a couple of other little uh, caveats. I think your point on uh, global imbalances that you um, in, uh, um, mentioned at the outset is very important. Uh, and, um, you know, this is one of these lofty, highbrow discussions that takes place in G20 circles. Uh, and, um, you know, if you think that, um, you know, the Paul O'Neill and John Snow uh, were out of their element in, in discussing systemic risk, you ought to sit in on one of these G20 meetings and, and listen to them talk about global imbalances. Um, so I, I think we need, you know, probably greater expertise uh, uh, in uh, understanding uh, this um, very destabilizing mix uh, of, of global savings right now and the role that has played in fostering this crisis. And then let me um, just wade into something that I'm probably going to regret even speaking about um, uh, given um, uh, uh, where I have worked and where I'm still working uh, uh, part-time and in light of uh, what um, has previously been said. And this is um, on the executive compensation issue. Uh, I realize this is a very inflammatory issue. It's a very uh, 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 sort of high-charged uh, uh, populist issue, especially in election year. Uh, and there's a perception that these, you know, rich Wall Street guys have been ripping off the little guy for a long time, and um, you know, I, I, I well remember uh, I was working in Asia, and my wife sent me a, uh, she forwarded to me um, an email flyer that she had received uh, a new tour operator. Uh, we live in, in um, New Canaan, was uh, giving uh, tours of uh, the homes of AIG executives in uh, Fairfield County. Uh, so it was, you know, like, you know, these are the, the lynch mobs who wanted to get the overly compensated um, financial services uh, executives. 
Uh, all I can speak about is my own experience in working for one financial services firm for uh, 28 years. We have um, uh, a brutal compensation uh, system. Uh, and um, uh, as a result of the, the trading losses that Morgan Stanley took uh, in um, late um, uh, 2008, um, all of the traders uh, who were involved in those positions have been fired. All of their supervisors and managers have been replaced or asked to resign. The stockholders uh, for um, all the securities and all the employees uh, have a, the bulk of their net worth in the shares, most of whom are not involved in the activities. Their net worth is down an average of about 50% uh, in terms of their cash holdings. And their option holdings, which account for about another third to 40% of their net worth, are, are worthless. I'm not saying that you should weep for uh, 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 Wall Street. But the idea that um, there's no accountability on compensation uh, for making uh, trading mistakes, banking mistakes, uh, or other mistakes, uh, and that could be addressed by having some type of clawback uh, or other uh, uh, new compensation caps or procedures, I think is, is questionable. And I, I think uh, the mistakes that, that our trading desk made, and they were made by a few rather than a lot, unfortunately would have been made under almost any compensation structure that I have seen uh, proposed. So I, I think this is one of these populist uh, politically charged fixes that, um, is, um, uh, that has an awful lot of support and appeal, but one that is not uh, effective. But the, the point that I would like to close on is again, um, Dodd-Frank, um, necessary but not sufficient, uh, addressed mainly at uh, the crisis that has occurred. It's not clear that it will be effective in addressing the next crisis. Uh, and there will be a next crisis uh, until we get, I think, um, uh, a new uh, thinking and design for monetary policy in the United States. Thank you. Well, uh, before we open the floor for some questions, let me see if there is any comment uh, from uh, one of the presenters to another one of the presenters. Uh, Tom? Yeah. I just wanted to say something, uh, is this on? Yeah. About, uh, since all three of us raised the issue of compensation, um, I want to say something about that. Um, I, th I think, you know, it's not, it's not true that compensation had no role in the financial crisis. Um, I don't think it was necessarily central to it, but it certainly paid a, played a role in building up systemic risk on the balance sheet of these banks. And the best demonstration of that was at UBS, and UBS commissioned uh, an, a study, I think, by, I think it was done by McKinsey, but they hired some consultants to say, you know, how did, how did we end up with all this garbage on our balance sheet? And the study gives a very clear account of how the uh, compensation incentives of traders and people on trading desks gave them big rewards for 
basically operating this internal carry trade. Their cost of fund is low. They could buy these mortgage-related securities that produce the yield, put them on the books, warehouse them, uh, and treat the interest differential as profit, which we all know it's not, or, you know, not in some real sense, uh, but then add that to the pool on which their compensation was based. Um, the other thing I want to say, so, so it, it definitely was a culprit. Was it a major culprit? Uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure. But Bob Schiller's analysis was exactly right, but it didn't go far enough. Um, so what he said is that we need to reform compensation because <coughs> even though shareholders and executives' interests are aligned uh, such that executives are rewarded for taking bigger risks because they know and the shareholders know that there is this implicit guarantee out there that they'll be rescued. They're too big to fail. There's a too big to fail insurance guarantee uh, that kicks in. And so that pushes them in the direction, you know, they have lower costs of capital, pushes them to take greater risks. Um, but the solution to that Part of the solution may be to have clawbacks and things like that. But the real solution to that is to price those guarantees. You have to price the insurance guarantees that are out there in the economy. You have to price too big to fail guarantees. You have to price <coughs> access to lender of last resort. Um, what do you mean price them? Charge, uh, charge, you know, the FDIC in its original yeah. conception was an insurance company. You paid a price based on your riskiness. So, um, so something like that. It, I think it, it can be measured and it can be priced, but we're, we're too afraid to do that. Yeah, I, I should just recall that in reference to this incident at Jackson Hole where Raul Rayan was vilified uh, by somebody, I mean, precisely the point that Raul was making in that paper is that there, was, uh, there were perverse or wrong incentives in the compensation structure of a financial institution. And I think, uh, at least in the context that he described that, he was right. On the other hand, uh, is uh, the point that Steve was mentioning. You know, and uh, the story that Raghud said that, you know, these people are having, a, a, are making a one-side bet in which they cannot uh, uh, lose and they can win a lot, mm -hmm. well, prove wrong because the Lehman Brothers guys got their network totally wiped out. I think it was Asharia from your school who said they were like, uh, you know, uh, not only throwing bombs to a crowd, uh, but they ran towards the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> because they invested their own money in the garbage yeah. that they were uh, originating and securitizing. <coughs> Can I just say something about yeah. Steve's uh, comment that the Fed should be hardwired to worry about systemic issues? Uh, my first thought was that's already uh, in, the, in the bill because the Fed is a member of the Financial Services Oversight Council, which is defined as having a systemic objective. And the Treasury, the way the FSOC works is to 
then delegate authority to the Fed for these firms that are risk, grave risks to the economy to, mm -hmm. to regulate. Uh, but I think you're right that this doesn't quite do it. Uh, creating uh, a meeting, I don't know how often they'll meet, once a month, all these heads of uh, the, F the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC will get together in some meeting. That's not the same thing as having the Fed have its mission redefined as having the authority and responsibility for dealing with systemic uh, crises. And I think that uh, someone has to be responsible and has it as the main mission. So, uh, and also the central bank is the logical. Th th we have a tradition of almost 100 years and other countries even longer for the central bank having maybe some responsibility for systemic uh, risks. And so it seems to me more natural. It would have been more natural to do what you said than what the, the Dodd-Frank bill said. Let me, let me just <coughs> clarify one, one point. I think the Fed, yes, is, is a member initially. They, of course, they wanted to run this committee and they lost that, that battle. Uh, but <coughs> they're, they're now part of a process that presumably will deal with <coughs> systemic risk in the narrow sense. What I'm after is, is something that is actually broader than that, and, and that is that the monetary, the basic monetary policy tool of the Fed, the overnight lending rates, uh, be set in a way that is um, uh, much more um, aligned with broad financial stability objectives uh, in, in the United States. I mean, I remember you were kind enough to send me galley proofs of your, uh, your the first edition of It's a treasury bond bubble next, right? That's happening right now. Yeah. Okay, let's have some uh, questions or comments from the audience. And uh, let me start here. Okay. Uh, Get the microphone. I think it's on. globalization that's sponsoring this because Basel, of course, deals with a global solution to, to the regulatory situation. So I'd like to hear the panelists maybe sort of comment perhaps on the, the proposal that was released over the weekend uh, and the fact that we've got until effectively 2023 for all of the, the implementation to come through and get the right capital rules in place. That seems to me an enormous period of time <laughs> within which we could have countless more crises. And in the context of that, I'd also like to sort of address, if you could address Steve's point about the Fed, 
because um, it seems to me that if you had very strong capital rules and you had leverage ratios and you dealt with the systemic problems through the regulatory framework, then the Fed could actually get away from the business of having to worry about the financial sector and focus on the economy. And it seems to me that that would be another way of addressing that. So I'd, I'd just like to, anybody who'd like to comment on that and sort of specifically talk about perhaps the Basel uh, proposal. Thank you. Uh, well, the Basel committee looked at uh, a lot of uh, studies about what, how to make the system more resilient. And uh, what, I, what I've seen emphasized in the press reports I've read about it is that they're going to add a, what they call a capital conservation buffer to the capital stock requirements for banks. Uh, and if, it, so the problem is with capital requirements is that uh, th they start being violated in bad times. And so uh, asking banks to rebuild their capital in a bad time is exactly backwards. So that's why you need a buffer. And uh, the, the buffer, w when you're violating the buffer, then your activities become limited. So it's, it's a good idea. And then on top of that, they've added another uh, 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 counter-cyclical buffer that regulators can add at a time when the economy is overheated. And with the second buffer, uh, that again requires banks to raise more capital in good times when, when it's imposed. So these are clever mm -hmm. ideas. Now there's other ideas that, uh, I, I belong to the Squam Lake group, and, and we were talking about uh, contingent capital requirements. And I know that people at the Financial Stability Board also in Basel were studying these, but I, I, I haven't seen that these were mm -hmm. recommended at this, at this time. It's also in Dodd-Frank. Again, in the usual Dodd-Frank way, a study will be <laughs> commissioned of cap contingent capital requirements, uh, and uh, then uh, the, the uh, appropriate regulators will have the power to impose them, uh, something like that. So uh, I think some good ideas still haven't been adopted. It seems like we're going part way, and Basel III is an improvement, but uh, there are still more ideas that will help. Uh, but this is exactly the kind of systemic thinking that, that, you, that you were saying, that uh, it is true that the bill kind of focuses on individual banks. Uh, and it doesn't say much about looking at the aggregate leverage ratio. Maybe John G. Uh, John Janakopoulos would have something to say about this. It says something, again, it, banks that have a grave threat to the economy would, might have a leverage ratio managed differently by regulators. It, it's not, it, it's not an inspirational proposal in that form, but maybe it will evolve into something. Uh, and, it, and there's still hearings, there's going to be more development of these ideas. Um, I, I think that uh, I was trying to puzzle on Monday why bank stocks, European bank stocks went up. Uh, because if Basel III were really binding on these, folks, um, <coughs> you would expect the rate of return on equity is going to fall, you know, credit's going to be tighter. But then you look at the time horizon, and I think it reflected a great sigh of relief that it wasn't going to bite anytime soon. Um, you know, as I, one of the things I worry about is that these kind of global accords about capital requirements are a good idea in principle, but our past experience with them, if you take Basel II, it's just a miserable failure. 
Um, indeed, you could even argue that it played a big role in, in the financial crisis. And if there's a long time before these capital requirements uh, become, have some bite, then there's a long time to engage in regulatory arbitrage. And what happened in the, in, with Basel II is exactly that. Um, so they still focus on one firm at a time, that one firm at a time has enough capital, um, and they still use risk weighting of assets to some degree, uh, a little, little more strict than, than in the past. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the ultimate solution. Now, in the Dodd-Frank Act, what they said about capital requirements was that they were going to put in more stringent capital requirements and that they would treat whatever Basel, the Basel III process came up with as a possible lower bound for what capital requirements could be. So they, they were fully aware of all the problems in politically and, uh, <coughs> and in terms of lobbying and pressure that the Basel process has inherently in it. And they said we're going to be tougher than that, most likely. So. Okay. You want to have management and boards on the same side as uh, the regulators. Uh, there has to be something, some incentive other than clawback and, and monetary uh, uh, considerations. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of jail time? I mean, uh, what? the fear. Oh, not, jail time. Not, oh. not that anybody wants to see it happen. But that's the only—that's the only fear that will put them on the same side. If, if you break the law, you should go to jail. Yeah. So, you know, set a law that you know makes it a criminal offense to uh, get your um, institution you know, involved in some type of systemic accident, and if that law is judged to be constitutional and survives the courts, and I'm not a legal. I'm going to define it better than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I think in the, in the, in the bill, uh, there is a provision which is uh, much stronger than any previous provision, establishing the responsibility and the liability of directors of uh, financial institutions uh, beyond what is already stated in the status of the SEC. Whether that will uh, make directors to be more serious about their job, I don't know. But I hope the that's the case. I mean, but in the bill, if you read that part carefully, sadly, I don't have a life. I read that part of the bill carefully. Um, there's a lot of talk about rules of construction and what the, the rules of construction say very clearly is that, you know, there's been this law and um, rule in the U.S. that has kept, it's a, t it's a 
rule that solves a problem of time consistency. It says, if directors make decisions that are in, based on their best business judgment, even though they turn out to be lousy, you can't, you can't penalize them for it. You can't sue them, you can't send them to jail. And uh, that's, that's still going to be the rule that governs uh, corporate directors. Is the Delaware? Yeah, uh, it's Delaware courts. If a, um, a CEO signs off on um, a, a quarterly earnings statement and it is found that the CEO uh, unwillingly was aware of something that was to be disclosed later, he is criminally liable. So yeah. that's the closest. Yeah. Blue shirt. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of two aphorisms, two sayings. I mean, some men uh, steal with a, a gun, and some steal with a pen. And. Uh, it seems, to, well, I'll just use that one. It seems to me that, uh, and I have a 30-year career in corporate finance, and I'm lucky now to have been able to retire and uh, come to Yale where I'm, I finished a degree here. Uh, I think I know where I speak that, uh, wherever I speak when I say that uh, you can make these rules and uh, laws as complex as you want about behavior, and the fact is that these are very smart people who will find a way to uh, get around whatever regulation, however meticulously uh, crafted, may come to exist when these various studies have been completed and uh, additional rules are written. So let us not look to, in my opinion, uh, the capitalists to make this better. Let us instead look to the regulators. Uh, we've had wonderful regulators over the decades that I can think of. Uh, Volcker, uh, I think Arthur Burns, uh, going way back, uh, had my admiration. Uh, Arthur Levitt at the SEC. These were men of probity who knew it was a game and they had to put their full weight into it in order to push against the capitalists who were finding clever ways around the rules. And when we joke, I think, quite reasonably about men like Snow or O'Neill, who were doing comically irrelevant things at the time, 
you really have to say uh, the regulators have failed. So I guess I would ask, I guess my question is, would you comment? Don't you think it's the regulators and their intention that matters most at the end of the day? If they take the laws, if they take the rules seriously and fight like hell, they can keep the games to a minimum. I won't say oh, keep them from happening, but keep them to a minimum. Would you care to comment? I'll comment on that, uh, just briefly. Um, somebody asked me this question at a, at a conference, I don't remember exactly, it had something to do with central banks, and I said, look, you work in a central bank, or you worked at the, in the Federal Reserve Board in this case, who are the soup reg guys? Who are the soup reg crew at the Board of Governors? And how much are they paid compared to the monetary economists? Where are their offices? You know, do you know any of them by name? It's a matter of giving people and executing regulatory functions some level of reward and some status for doing that responsibly. You know, otherwise it just becomes a bureaucratic function. So I guess I agree with you. Thanks. Um, I actually had a question that was sort of the opposite of the last question. And um, I was wondering how much we can reasonably expect uh, legislation to mitigate these systemic risks. Um, and especially given that, I, I guess I was wondering how much exactly is risk an endemic part of financial markets? Um, and so how could we possibly conceive of reforming the financial system in such a way that reduces the possibilities of, of a subsequent downturn, um, especially when we consider things in the long run, um, and also look at sort of a global picture about how financial markets are increasingly intertwined and whether legislation in the US really has the ability to impact sort of global systemic issues. I would just say that uh, risk is not in uh, systemic risk is not an intrinsic risk. It depends on the design of the system. And that uh, in the 19th century, we had periodic banking crises that involved the compromise of the money. Uh, your money became worthless, you care. Then, then we had, uh, we got the national banking system, which helped reduce that. And then we got the, the Federal Reserve System, which helped reduce that problem. So we made progress. But still, in 1933, your bank saving account was vulnerable, and lots of innocent people lost everything because they had it in the bank. <laughs> well, they weren't insured. Uh, and so then we got deposit insurance. Uh, now, there, these examples of progress, that we have to keep fixing the system as it gets more advanced, new, pro like the shadow banking system appears. But I, I don't think that the unregulated system is going to work well. It's, it's our ability to minimize systemic risk is a sign of our progress, and our, uh, it's not it's something that we have to keep doing. Okay, last question, unfortunately. Let me go all the way back to you. You, 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 you.
Um, I'd like to ask uh, Professor Schiller, in light of uh, what uh, Mr. Roach said, um, what he sees as the mandate, like what the new mission for the Fed, or what it, the mission should include in terms of financial stability, directly referring to the monetary, the policy, and what has gone on, and you mentioned yourself just now, the, uh, the 19th century uh, banking or the bank crisis. Yeah. It would just seem to me, um, especially if we, again, look at Mr. Roach's career, the emphasis on Asia, there, there's a lot of problems. The Dodd-Frank Act, or the bill, the act that is, uh, again, it is sort of looking back. It may or may not address what's going forward, but it seems the real crux of the problem is uh, the, the liquidity. There's just so much out there, and there remains to be so much out there. We look at the Japan, Japan, the talk of the carry trade that was once the, you know, the huge yen carry trade. If you could just comment on your thoughts of perhaps there's a, a real solution uh, with um, talking, having the Fed sort of um, curtailing the Fed's uh, powers and or really saying the Fed's uh, mandate must include uh, some restraints um, in terms of how much uh, control they have over the monetary policy, the use of you know, the policy. Well, I, I think that uh, it's implicit in the things that uh, others have said here that a liquidity cycle, maybe we should have John G answer this question. Mm -hmm. We have a liquidity cycle and it hasn't been recognized and it doesn't seem to be fully understood by the framers of this bill. And so uh, we need regulators who are, now we do in some sense have, I mean Basel III is, uh, uh, is involved with, it, it is a step forward, but it, maybe John, can, can we ask you to uh, give your? Uh, <laughs> yeah, John. <laughs> your, uh, what do you, what, uh, how would you answer this question? This is John Janakopoulos uh, <laughs> in the econ department here at Yale. Well, <laughs> I would like to make a comment that has a little bit to do with the question, and also it connects uh, things everybody said. I think um, the idea that the failure, if there is a failure in the Dodd-Frank bill, is that it concentrates too much on institutions and too little on the systemic economy. I, uh, that's what Tom Cooley said. I think that's a very central point. And it's connected to the idea of uh, uh, what Steve said, that there should be, um, you know, that uh, bubbles played a very big role in the current crisis and have in previous crises. And maybe we should add, and this is maybe connected to your question, maybe we should expand the powers of the Fed to look after bubbles as well as, uh, as their other two missions of, of inflation and unemployment. My reaction to all that is that it's all, it's, it, I, I agree with almost all of that, except I, I think one has to add one more thought that Monetary policy is just one thing. Regulating the amount of money or the interest rate is just one tool. And we've been confined for some reason to this one tool for far too long. So I think I would disagree with Steve when he says that it was the low interest rates that caused our crisis and that we could have avoided it all with better interest rates. M many people say that. I just heard at Jackson Hole, in fact, um, uh, Taylor of the Taylor Rule, he said, the only thing that went wrong, we said, you know, we followed the Taylor rule up to the second decimal place until a few years ago, and then we got away from it. That's his rule. We're, and now look what happened to our economy. And all we have to do is go back to the Taylor rule. So Steve is saying something a little bit similar to that, and I, I think that's, I think it's, it's falls far short of what we need to do. There's another variable when you make a loan. Almost all loans, the vast majority of loans, are collateralized. When you borrow money uh, to buy a house, they can take your house if you don't uh, pay back. So the, the, uh, the amount of money as a fraction, the loan to value as a fraction of the house, 
That's a second variable besides the interest rate. It's a far more important variable. So what caused bubbles, I think, is that too high loan-to-value. If we didn't have such a high loan-to-value, we wouldn't have had the bubbles. We could have played around with the interest rate. I don't think that would have stopped the bubbles. It certainly didn't reverse the bubbles. When we got into the crisis, we set the interest rate at zero, and it didn't solve our problems. If you can't get things to go back up by lowering the interest rate, I don't think uh, that the changing the interest rate is the, you know, that one tool can't do everything. So in summary, I think that I agree that the Fed, my own view, that the Fed or this council uh, that Bob talked about so much, somebody should have the responsibility of regulating systemic risks. I think part of that has to be looking at leverage, loan-to-values, what I mean by that. Part of that has to be, has to be connected to looking at loan-to-values, something that we've just avoided doing for far too long, even though any anyone at Morgan Stanley would tell you that loan-to-value is a critical variable, and yet we just ignore it. And we shouldn't do that. And I think, and, and now this Office of Financial Research, they have the power to investigate what and to uncover what all the loan to values are. How much do people put down on houses? How about to buy an inverse IO? And they could study that, uh, you know, study that comprehensively and, and reveal the numbers. So, sorry, I've talked a little bit too long, but the, the bottom line is I think that we have another variable, which is leverage, and that if the Fed were to use that, uh, it could, uh, it could uh, s stabilize the economy. And these measures that have been passed in Basel III in the Dodd-Frank bill, which basically says look at an institution and sort of look at their debt-to-equity ratio, that's kind of like leverage, that's going to be a complete failure because if you limit the debt-to-equity ratios of a few banks or other financial institutions, the leverage will just move somewhere else. And if you limit the overall debt-to-equity ratio of one big institution, they'll just, they'll just hold riskier securities where they don't need to leverage as much. So in fact, you'll force them to do even worse. Yeah. So I think the answer, the solution to our problem has to lie in looking, as Tom said, at economy-wide problems and not institution-bound problems. So measuring leverage at the level of what do you, what's the loan-to-value of particular things you're borrowing against. And once you recognize that as a key variable and allow the Fed or some other regulatory body to manage that as well, I think we can make tremendous problems. I don't think the next crisis is going to be completely different from the previous ones. It's going to involve leverage even the next time. Thank you, John. I think you are saying that there is still some hope for macroeconomies <laughs> who have been disgraced, but uh, we still have some, probably some work to do. Uh, unfortunately, time is over, so all what remains is to say thank you to our three great uh, panelists, and thank you to you for attending. That was a roundtable discussion on U.S. financial reform, moderated by Ernesto Zedillo, the Frederick Eisman 74 director, Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. The roundtable discussion took place at Yale University on September 15, 2010.